This is the Working Drummer Podcast. Working Drummer Podcast. Featuring ground-level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, this is Matthew Krauss, and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today my guest is drummer, director, writer, and producer Creighton Doan. Early in his career, Creighton was a busy drummer on the road touring with artists like Alana Miles, Harem Scarum, Sister Melanie Doan, and the band Honeymoon Suite. In recent years, he's focused his talents on work that he does in the studio, from writing custom music for advertising and TV, to composing for film and theater, to songwriting and record production. It was a special treat for us to spend some time speaking with Creighton. He's a wonderful drummer, but also his perspective as a producer and a songwriter and a multi-instrumentalist kind of gives us some insight on some of the many things that your experience as a drummer can bring to the table when looking for other avenues to do your work within the music business. If you're interested in finding out more about this episode and all of the over 250 episodes that we've done here at Working Drummer Podcast, you can find us at workingdrummer.net. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, Stitcher, iTunes, where you can subscribe to us. You can also follow us and subscribe to us on Spotify. Check us out there. Last week, my co-host Zach Albetta had the opportunity to interview Chris Brady at Aquarian Drums, and we decided to tack on a giveaway contest that Aquarian is doing. It is a full set of drum heads up to a six-piece kit. All you have to do is share and tag us on social media that episode. From the Facebook world, we've got a longtime listener, Jimmy Allison, who posted and shared that. We appreciate that. And he writes, yes, I'll be up front here. I'm trying to win some free drum heads. However, listen to this podcast, The Working Drummer. Hopefully, like me, it will change your professional life as well as your personal life. Jimmy, thanks so much for doing that. Another person that posted on the Facebooks is Matt Waddell. He writes, The Working Drummer Podcast is a great source of inspiration and information for me and so many other drummers. I love Aquarian Drumheads because of their great products. Aquarian also appeals to me because I'm from Memphis and we love an underdog. I feel like they're an underdog because they don't get the same love as Remo and Evans. If you all have a chance, check out this podcast and Aquarian Drumheads. Matt, thank you so much for doing that. Later today, we're going to announce the winner of that contest. Thanks for everyone that shared the episode that Zach did with Chris Brady last week. If you are interested in helping to support what Zach and I do here at the Working Drummer Podcast, patreon.com slash working drummer is where you can go to do a monthly donation that helps support what it is that we do. As we have grown, our expenses have grown along with us, and uh, we've been able to knock out a few of those expenses this year with the help of our patrons that are over there at Patreon. And if you do sign up to donate even as little as a dollar, you have access to educational material that we are regularly populating on that page that as a patron of Patreon, you have exclusive access to. Most recently... We did a master class here in Nashville. If Patreon isn't your thing, then we have a PayPal option on our website. You can go there and make a one-time donation. We appreciate everyone's help over the years in keeping this podcast going strong. So here we go, my conversation with Creighton Doan. I wanted to be a drummer kind of as early as I can remember. I, I had mentors. I was around music. I wanted to be a drummer. Like three years old, you asked me, I want to be a professional drummer. Yeah. And then 
I kind of did that. And, uh, and I, I think I burned out a little bit, but the thing is, I, I have a lot of friends that I made a lot of friends when I was doing that full time, kind of did that till I was about 30. Obviously I still play. I play every day. I got drums in my studio. I don't really tour. I don't play live a lot. You know, it's, it's kind of taken, it's evolved to another thing for me, but I sit around and I'm just in awe of my, my friends who I'm not in close contact so much with because they're off, you know, having lives and families and touring and recording how a working drummer does it. It's tough in the, in this era, right? Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's fragmented. It's broken down. Like I had the luck of like, you know, you could be in a city where there was a scene and you could play with like 10 bands and then you could have a couple of recording act gigs and you go on the road a couple of times a year and you make all your money. And then eventually you got in the studio a bit or got into some jingles. There was just like lots of work. And when you, you know, when there was money, it was good money and you were taken care of and, mm-hmm. you know, you weren't hauling your gear to the fucking airport ever, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, or managing your own freight or any of that kind of stuff that I know guys are doing all the time. Yeah. I think I think it, the scene has changed and evolved so much, and I think there's a variety of reasons why. Uh, it probably wouldn't enough be there wouldn't be enough time in the day to go into all the different reasons. But there's so many yeah. different ways that are people that people are navigating it and figuring out how to make a living within the way the music business is done. And but but that aside, I I think it has uh, sometimes has a lot to do with your scene or. Sure. Uh, you know, where you're at, because, you know, even like the New York and L.A. scene has changed quite a bit. And you, we have a lot of migrants from there coming to Nashville to try right. and, and, and make that work. But um, and that's going to be one of the things I wanted to ask you about, kind of like any distinctions between what what you how an artist makes a living in a place like Canada compared to the United States or if you feel comfortable speaking on that oh yeah I mean I can give you my limited opinion on it I'm super uh. opinionated but I my scope is <laughs> is like my stupid little world right so <laughs> I'll, I'll talk about it all like I know something but I, I do only yeah. know what I know <clears throat> and uh, whatever if I can yeah. shed well, some light on something uh, sure yeah. Well, that, that's why we have 200, over 250, uh, because everyone's opinion, you, you put it all together to create a picture. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's great. It's great. Awesome. Tell me what's going on this week. What's been happening? This week, I am in the throes of theater. That's, that's, my, that's my working day-to-day, probably f- mostly for the next couple of weeks. So I'm working in a theater. It's in Hamilton, Ontario, which is a a city that's quite close to Toronto. They have a, a, you know, an A house, beautiful space with an incredible sort of host crew and rig and, uh, you know, working team of people that are just fantastic. It's called Aquarius theater. So I've worked out there. I think this is my 14th show I've done over probably the last decade and I'm composing music and doing sound design and I don't do theater all the time. It's mm-hmm. one of the things I do some of the time. But, you know, I've sort of, if I've done anything uh, to set myself apart, I, I always just, I try to do stuff that's music oriented, music driven. And I try to, even whether the budget's there or not, I always try to create a bunch of new music and, you know, get some other players in it, you know, on the music and, you know, bring as much life to it as possible. It doesn't, not every show requires a big live music feel. Sometimes it's very, 
underscore quiet, subtle, you mm-hmm. know, some string pads and stuff. But um, so this week I'm, I've actually taken on a show that is very heavy in the music production department because it's a, it's got a dance element. It's a play, but it's got like dance sequences with these amateur belly dancers, women of all ages. That's the scenario. Mm-hmm. So a little, a ton of Middle Eastern stuff, um, you know, getting to write some fun stuff. I had a fantastic bass player in here today, Pat Kilbride, tracking uh, bass on, you know, sort of some of the stuff that goes over to the, like the Bollywood groove side of things. And uh, yeah, so that's what I'm working on. Just probably... 10, 12 minutes of actual music, a bunch of cues, and then a ton of sound design. That's everything from people having sex to cats. Like it's, you know, <laughs> which, which is, which isn't the reason I do theater. Like sound design is something that I kind of through advertising and theater. I, I learned a lot about it and I have fun with it, but you know, I try to, when I'm working in theater, I'm usually there because there's a music element needed. And then because I'm doing, music and sound design of course i'm doing dogs barking and train whistles and wind and whatever else you know needs to be there so kind of like a foley artist but in a theater setting yeah and it's all pre-record stuff right so it's all yeah. it's all like building it in my studio going in and teching it into this into the space with the system in the host tech and and kind of you know designing it into the space but generally, hopefully, you know, 80% of what you're doing is good before you get in there. And then you're just tweaking timings and EQs and effects where needed kind of thing. Gotcha. Gotcha. It sounds, it sounds like a lot of fun. And uh, I imagine that the technology allows you to do so much more now with sound design and all these other things than it was even 10 years ago. It's pretty cool. Yeah, you can, I mean, if you have time, time is always the enemy, right? Because <laughs> of, of budgets. So you can dream up a lot, uh, but if you don't have time to execute it properly, you know, you can't always, you can't always get there. So it, it, not, not to say you can't do a lot very quickly because of technology, you're totally right. And, and we, I think we do achieve some really cool things, but um, you know, the, the whole the whole thing of like, you know, you have a budget, you have a, a time, you have a, sometimes you, you, the theater I'm in these days is beautiful, sounds amazing. So I know if I mix something in my environment, I go there, it's going to translate. So that's beautiful. But lots of times you're not in a great space. You're in what would be like considered a warehouse or not much more acoustically uh, sweet uh, or, or not even as nice as like a, you know, a, a sport check or a you know, Home Depot, it's going to sound that bad. <laughs> and and so you're going to go in and the rig is going to be rented and hung, you know, haphazardly. And you're going to go in with half a day attack and what can sound good in there kind of thing is is, is the objective. So it has its range, right? Right. <laughs> you have moments right. where you're getting getting to do it in a way you really want to do it and you have a little bit of extra time and great tech support. And other times you're going in and it's like it's kind of in your mom's garage and you have to kind of go into the design thinking, what will sound good in here? What, what, what can I do that will actually enhance and work, you know, versus I wanted to do this kind of a show, but it was, you know, it turned out to be crappy because I couldn't execute it properly. I'm guessing just your experience as a musician, just throughout the years of touring and recording that all informs you on kind of assessing the space and sound design. Yeah. Totally. Good question. You're, you're really on this. I feel like it, I sort of feel like an idiot just talking away, uh, babbling. I'm a, I'm a good actor, man. No, you're, you're good though. That, that's that, you know, the things about working in like a theater space that I yeah. really, um, 
I, I don't know if it's different from other guys because, like, you know, when you do this, you don't work with other sound designers very often. Mm-hmm. You just you, so you don't know how everyone else approaches it. But some of the best sound men I worked with in the days when you know you'd be playing arenas and, and big rinks and stuff were guys who like they were pulling stuff out of the mains and they were using the space to to produce the sound from the stage and they were doing like they were doing something like you would do in a small club with a very limited pa like almost like a hot semi-acoustic thing but they do it in an arena because that thing is a is a monstrous animal and you know uh, i i tend to think of like a space like that with theater i tend to think very acoustically try to mix things with with lots of ceiling room and plenty of dynamics so that the space becomes part of the sound that's being generated in the space, if that mm-hmm. makes any sense. Yes, for sure. And uh, instead of just like, you know, slamming it, like slamming a, like a pop track in my studio, you know, it's all about limiting and compression and in your final maxing out with, with levels. With the theater stuff, I'm mixing really low, super dynamic, and hoping that some of that air and space I can bring into the space, you know, through through the reproduction of whatever playback is. And and that that's all about working with guys that knew how to do live sound in weird spaces. I hear drummers justifying their musical existence. Like, mm. I'm a drummer, but I'm a musician or some, some kind of right. thing like that. Like, right. there's that kind of crap. And it's it, there's lots of funny drummer jokes and blah, blah, blah. And I find them funny, too. But I'm like, I'm sort of the anti-drummer drummer because I don't think there's any good musician who isn't a drummer. I don't think anyone who knows where to start the beat, how long it should last, how it tapers off dynamically and then ends, isn't a drummer. And Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. when people can play all the right notes and it just doesn't feel right, it doesn't place right, guess what's missing? That person's not a drummer. And 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 I feel like every great musician has got to be a drummer first. And and so that every time you're I'm sitting, you know, whether I'm orchestrating some period thing and I'm figuring out how the woodwinds are supposed to sound or, you know, something I sort of have no business doing, but I do all the time. <laughs> it's always about performances. And it's always about how those performances jibe and either or either somewhat perfectly or somewhat not perfectly. It's all about where they start and where they stop. It's all about attacks and and releases. And that is all drumming, right? That's all yeah. pressing the pressing the string, blowing through the reed. It's all those things. And you know, there's there's a quote, and I wish I could tell you who it was that said it, but they said the hardest thing about playing music is knowing when to start and knowing when to stop. And wow. that's that's drumming. And so that's mm-hmm. where it all starts. So yes, thank God I played drums because I'm kind of a crappy keyboard player. I don't have near enough music theater to, or theory to do the stuff. I, sh- I do every, every day, but I do have a, that instinct of where things need to go and where they should be placed. And that's, that's drumming. Cause like you said, we're arrangers. We, we, we hear the space. We're playing all these different things that do different symbols and drums and all different sizes and things have to come out and things have to, you know, sit behind we're, we we're arranging the second we're, we're using four limbs. We're, yeah. we're those people. No, I, I completely agree. And, and there is always this justification and, and, and it's hard to say exactly where that comes from. And I, I think we all get a good laugh out of it, uh, you know, with the drummer <laughs> jokes and things like that. But I mean, I, sure. I think you're right. I think there's a responsibility that drummers inherently have that sometimes we forget that we do, especially when you're sitting down behind a kit and you have things that have short notes and long notes and all these things like that. And you have to 
consciously or subconsciously be aware of how you're attacking this instrument to create this arrangement of, of sound, um, where uh, oftentimes, uh, you know, when I, I've got a young student I'm working with and we're learning to read, and I'm, I'm explaining to him, you know, the length of a quarter note, if you have a quarter note on, the, on one or an eighth note on one or a sixteenth note on one, when we hit that snare drum, it sounds the same. And he has to process that as a young student. It's like, but wait a minute, like if you were a horn player, it would be the difference between bop and bop and bop, you know, those things. So, yeah. it, I mean, I realize it, it, it doesn't simplify it. It actually complicates the issue. When it when mm-hmm. you're thinking about note length and arrangement and things like that, that as drummers you always have to consider. Um, and I'm sure, and it sounds like that's what translates for you into when you sit down with a clarinet patch and trying to figure out how to create something whimsical for a commercial and sound like a clarinet player. That's it. Yeah. You know, I mean, and, and, you know, you rely on your ears. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I do, I, that's what I do. And like, you know, the whole, the thing of what it should be doing. And then like you just mentioned another thing, working through a computer, a soft sampler, whatever you're using, even, even, you know, phrase samples or something you can, um, you know, that's a whole other animal to try to, to try to trick that that sound that you're trying to get to happen right, um, right. That, that's a that's another dimension that you kind of you know take on trying to trying to make the sound that you hear in your head sure but but yeah i mean look drumming drumming you know you've heard you've heard that thing where, where you know someone they play in time but there's no feel or they mm-hmm. you know or or pro, even programming drums that are like you know it sounds like the machine gun effect or whatever weird sampling stuff it that it's it's kind of hard it's kind of hard to to talk about it but like you know you hear when, when someone plays i i watched you play a shuffle on youtube because i was just researching so i wouldn't be a complete idiot talking to you <laughs> and and you know like you're like like you know you're you're a great drummer and you know pete oh, pete you, uh lesperance our, our good friend has you know has said the same but i i watching your you know your super sweet feel but then you're doing all these little tight little hi-hat little stabby accents and it's like that that crazy mixture of like stuff you can't teach but it's it's all that subtlety See, that you were just talking about now i'm curious to know what you're talking about <laughs> it was it was yeah it was something it was something i don't know it was something it was you and it was something i saw i don't know oh, awesome. awesome anyway it, it was great uh was there a time that well you said yourself uh you were you wanted to be a drummer like this is what you wanted to be but it sounds like from your family history, music was always an element. It was always an important part of your life. Uh, yeah. With, with your with your parents being music teachers, with your sister involved in music. Uh, but what what kind of led to where you're at now? So uh, if we could start maybe kind of early on and give yeah. us a history. <clears throat> yeah. So my dad's a music teacher kind of you know, was a, he's a pretty crazy music guy. He's like 81. He's probably gigs more than most of the guys I know that are still gigging around uh, <laughs> these parts. He's like a nonstop force of music. And he, he introduced ukulele into the school system in, in the East coast of Canada uh, in the sixties and seventies as a sort of intro 
gateway instrument to a, to all music programs. So that you know, a cheap, affordable, small instrument getting in, getting in the hands of young kids um, gets them reading, singing, playing, rhythm, the whole gamut, very quickly. And then from that, from there, you know, there's a band program, there's a string program, there's a percussion department, a piano department, everyone sings in choirs. And Halifax was uh, in Halifax, Nova Scotia. That that was quite a model for uh, school systems right across the country. And he was a consultant for, you know, systems, uh, right, basically East Coast, West Coast in Canada. In fact, he spent 20 years teaching Hawaiian music teachers how to teach ukulele in the classrooms, his, his method. Wow. So he, he, he's a he's a guru of music. He, I mean, he was a trombone major at Boston U. He played everything. Ukulele was the thing he thought was the quickest way to get music started with younger kids. It wasn't all he did. It wasn't the only, you know, they had symphony orchestras and student bands and, you know, like I say, string departments and everything else. It was an elaborate system of education. I grew up experiencing from like basically from birth. So that's what I grew up in an environment where my dad's like an overachieving super music teacher. My mom's also a music teacher. She was pretty much a full-time mom, but you know, always teaching piano and played a bunch of instruments and volunteer ukulele in, in the local elementary school. My sisters played, you know, we all played violin at three. I quit pretty much right away. Um, <laughs> But, you know, my, my eldest sister is a, a fabulous piano player and can play violin, plays a bunch of instruments. You know, everyone had a turn at some brass and woodwinds along the way. And so, yeah, we all kind of grew up. You took piano lessons. You did you did it all. And then, uh, but I was a pretty bad student, but I did fall in love with the drums. And uh, so, you know, I ended up quitting piano way too soon, getting out of violin, ended up being the drummer in, in a uke group instead of playing uke in a uke group. And, but I love drums and there were a lot of great drummers in Halifax. Halifax had an incredible scene and a lot of student drummers that were like, you know, they're working professionals in high school. They were just gifted guys that uh, all went on to be pros. And so I had the benefit of that influence on me from a very young age, seeing it happen, being in gr- groups and performing groups all the time. And then having all these older guys that were, were pretty generous with me that were having careers, you know, and, and would come back to town at a gig and throw a stack of books at me and go, learn how to do this or wow. buy this record, go do that. You know, and it was, that part of it was fairly informal, but at the same time I was getting classical background in percussion ensembles and just regular, like straight up and down percussion classes and then getting to play in concert bands and student orchestras and, you know, sort of learning, a very, a very, you know, broad view of kind of how it all works, jazz bands, improv, you know, theory and arranging and all that stuff. So it was a pretty amazing start for just getting like that. And that was all like extracurricular stuff. That was not like private. That was all within the mm-hmm. school system. I mm-hmm. was getting all that plus my crazy home life of nonstop music. So I kind of knew I wanted to play drums. I, that was, I, cut my own little identity in the family as I'm going to be the drummer and, you know, worked pretty hard at it, I guess, or it came naturally because I started so young. And then by the time, you know, high school was coming along, I was like, man, I got to, I got to really start working at this or I'm not going to be good enough. And I started thinking I should go to a place like Humber in Toronto or try to get into Berkeley. You know, I got that going. And then I just started working and that, 
good, good or bad, that was where what happened. So I started. There were a lot of there was a lot of club bands playing around. I was able to get into a band, and I was get into another band. Then I, there was someone with a record deal, and I was I could sing and play. So I was getting a better gig, playing in a band that paid a little better and was touring a little bit more and going to more interesting places. And I, I did that for a few years around the Maritimes in some of Eastern Canada. And then I decided I should move to Toronto because it was the center of the universe for Canada <laughs> and, and so many great musicians here. I mean, that, you know, you'd asked about being a Canadian musician. Yeah. There, there is, I think, I think you got to work that much harder uh, because there's, there's probably someone said there's, you know, more, more great musicians than there are work for great musicians or there is work for great musicians. And so I think it just means the bar is that much higher. People really, you know, a lot of, a lot of great players here. That's, that's all I can say. And so I, I came to Toronto, another amazing education, had a, a lot of playing experience, live playing experience under my belt. And then I, I, it's one of those things like I was always trying to work and I was always trying to work with guys I thought were good. So, you know, I had my eye on like, I love these guys. They're amazing. I go see their band a million times. I talk to them. I start my own band with my friends and try to open for one of the cool bands I thought, you know, I wanted to jam with or sub with. And then eventually I just met people and auditioned for people and got to play with a lot of older guys because I had I had some experience and I, I could shuffle and stuff like that. So I got to play with some older guys that were, you know, really in a blues and R and B thing and got a huge education there. And that kind of led to just more and more playing and touring. And then you get a, you know, a gig with a recording act and that's a, that's a good thing. And you try to do more of that. And so, you know, it goes on and on and on. One of my first big gigs here was with a band called honeymoon suite, which was, yeah. was a band that had some hits in the States and was well known here. And, you know, I was like a, a replacement hired hand for, for their original member when they, when they decided to do something like that. But in the nineties, that was pretty common. A lot of bands did that. A lot of bands that are legacy bands now, you know, were replacing members or making changes. And, uh, so I, I got to be a young guy, I got to play with a, a band like Honeymoon Suite for a number of years. It was sort of like my cornerstone gig and then job around and do other things and play on jingles, play on other records and country music started to kind of happen again. Like new country was a thing. And I, I got playing with some Canadian artists that way and recording and meeting producers. And, you know, it was just that thing. So you're working in a certain circle. It just, the circle starts to grow. And, uh, as the music trends change, you just find yourself one day, wow, I'm playing on all country artists. And then f five years later, you're like, I'm on Lilith Fair and I'm playing with 18 year old girls. And, you know, a few years later, you know, my sister, uh, who is w one of the artists I've worked with and continue to work with, she was signed to Sony. She, she had a good crack at some action in Canada and we were, I spent a year and a half on the road with her touring with with a lot of uh, great musicians and you know having a ball so it just kind of evolved into like being very busy 12 years of like just doing it all the time either flying or getting on buses and and building up a little more studio and or jingle work or whatever when you were in the city did you you feel like the the time in the studio to have that work that jingle work the the other things that that was always something you were looking to nurture that aspect totally. of the business so knowing that at some point 
you're not going to be able to tour, not going to want to tour as much? It kind of, it just, it hit me a bit like a wall as far as the touring thing goes. But like, you know, the jingle stuff, again, Toronto was full of guys that were like amazing. Like, you know, in the 80s and even in the 90s, like, you know, three, four sessions a day, great readers, great players could play any style. There's like handful of guys, like drummers and, and other mm-hmm. musicians. And, you know, I looked up to a lot of these guys. I was getting into I was getting to dabble in that world as that world was changing. Mm-hmm. I could see I could see that it was changing and, and really because of my age, I don't know how you feel, but I feel like a lot of a lot of things that I was like, oh, that's what I need to get good at. I'd kind of focus on it, kind of get in a band or start getting some calls for that kind of thing. And then it would start disappearing and be like, oh, wait a minute. It's now it's this. And that I sort of would estimate it was like every three years there was like a page turn. As opposed to, it seemed like from about the late 70s to the late 80s, you could kind of see how to do things. There was kind of a pattern. And then once I got doing it, it was like the pattern really rapidly started to change. And I think it it changes even faster now. But um, so, yeah, I wanted to get into the studio more. I think making records was always my sort of my dream gig i was songwriting along the way as i and you know as i was doing all this other stuff messing around with a home studio i always really sort of imagined that like in my dream of dreams i'd be phil collins you know i could play play drums make records produce and write songs like that would be that's where it would all end up but getting experience in the studio was probably you know the best way to do it would be playing jingles uh you know getting on album dates and working with people that you thought you could learn something from. At what point did you meet Pete and Harry and, and start working with those guys and hear them scare them? Well, we crossed paths early days, like because we're, we're all the same age, Pete and Harry and I, but we came from different places. Uh, I was from the Maritimes. They, those guys were from Oshawa. So I wasn't really crossing paths with their scene on the way up. And they, you know, they were into a, a very more specific thing. And I was like... You know, I grew up thinking I could be Buddy Rich and I was going to be in a big band or something. And then when that wasn't happening, I was just like, I wanted to work. I wanted to do as many kind of gigs as I could. Those guys were very focused. They had record deals in their teen years and in their early 20s, they were making their own records, you know, doing their own thing. So I knew about them, but I wasn't, we weren't running in the same circles. But mm-hmm. Harry, Harry being quite a, quite an entrepreneur and, and, you know, a smart guy. He, he, when he started making his own records, he immediately invested in owning a studio to make his own records. And when he became a studio owner and was, you know, interacting with more of a scene, he was also a business. And so he was working on other projects and he was doing all kinds of different things. So there was a honeymoon suite live record that he actually recorded in a truck out behind a venue or a few, a few nights of, of a little tour. And he, he recorded it and mixed it. And, you know, we kind of knew each other, but in that experience, I think he was like, Hey man, you know, that thing turned out great. Like, you know, those great drums or whatever. It was all pre pro tools cutting stuff up. It was just like live is live. Right. And, and he was making other records and working with some other artists. So he started giving me a call once in a while, like come, come play on this thing I'm doing. And then we we had some other mutual friends. Other projects started to bleed, and before I you know before I knew it, I was like, wow, we're we're working on stuff kind of regularly. And then their drummer Darren, well Darren, who still plays with Harem Scarum, but at the time you know they they were doing their own thing, and Darren had 
must have been like in 2000 or something like that, or early 2000s, Darren decided to go do something differently. I pretty much was off the road at that point. But because Harry and I had this relationship, he was like, you should come play on this record and maybe you could tour. We don't go on the road that much. You know, he was kind of saying, you could just kind of come out and do the dates. It's <laughs> only a couple, only a couple of weeks a year. And I was like, yeah, that sounds funny. He goes, we'll go to Japan. It'll be a gas. And I kind of said, sure, that's great. And that's kind of when I got to know Pete. We were all probably in our early 30s then. And uh, so, again, one of those things where Pete's a great guy, plays great, yeah. loves hanging with, the, you know, Pete and Harry are both, you know, no BS guys, e easy, humble, funny. And uh, so we, we all got along. And because we all have studios and other things that we do outside the band, we just started working together more and more and more and you know i think it's we've got hundreds of sessions under our belts in some capacity together as a either as a a team or working for each other or someone mixing for someone or harry mastering for one of us or you know we we have so much cross-pollination it's kind of amazing you know 20 some years later but uh that so that's sort of how our harem association began and you know i, lo I love those guys like they were on my radar because they had there were a few tracks that they had done in the early years that I thought were stunning. I thought, you know, I thought they were super talented guys. So uh, for me to, to work with those guys and that they were so laid back, super professional and totally together, but not a drag to work with. That was, you know, that's why we have such a lasting relationship and friendship. The way you talk about Pete being humble. I mean, I can totally speak to that. So <laughs> Yeah. I mean, uh, so I got to know Pete back in 2012 when we did a tour with Michelle Wright, and um, I knew the name Harem Scarum, but when he came down to Nashville to rehearse with us, he seemed like a very talented player, but didn't seem to know the way Nashville was throwing out numbers and some of the terminology that's very unique to Nashville. Sure. And so... Yeah. Uh, it didn't really resonate with me immediately what Pete was capable of, if that makes sense. Sure. Until we were, I, I mean, as a person, I immediately connected with him. I mean, there's so much about, about him that I'm just like, man, I really like this guy a lot. And then when we're out traveling and we're on the bus and then somebody's like, hey, let's look at this YouTube clip of Harem Scarum. And I'm going, wait a minute, that's you? Are you kidding me? <laughs> It's pretty, it's, it's nuts. I mean, the way the guy plays it, it's kind of, it's insane, really. The first record that I got into and, and Harry, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Pete gave me a, um, I guess it wasn't a copy. It was, a it was a, a free download <laughs> back, yeah, back sure. in 2012 was Mood Swings 2. <laughs> yeah. And okay. uh, so I, I wanted to ask you about that. So Mood Swings was, uh, I think, a 1993 record that Harem Scarum put out. And yeah. then they retracted. it. I, I'm guessing they did it for publishing reasons. Yeah, to be. Well, there was there was exactly the, a way to control your master rights. And and really, there was it's also a fan favorite in many, many, I'd say in most territories, the guys have had success. That's the record. Yeah. Um, that that's the record everyone loves. That was a record that was on my radar before I knew the guys. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like uh, No Justice, I think is, is the sort of like the pinnacle of those guys killing it and doing what they do. And uh, that so that record, yeah, I think there was it was almost like 
people have been asking them for year for years to do that. And coming coming back from a hiatus, deciding to do something was like, well, coming out swinging, it would be a smart move to do it. And that's kind of what fans have been asking for, like if you can call it fans, fans or whatever labels put put the thing out. And um, so they decided, yeah, to go at it. And uh, it was the most fun ever. I just say that making making that record again because again I love that record and and there are things about it I can tell you or I you know if you want to hear more about that uh, yeah that were especially fun yeah in what way well I mean in those days uh, the, those re- records were made you know differently there was lots of things like mixture of like I, I don't know if people were still using Lin drums or whatever but there was lots of program drums or lots of sample drums mixed with live overdubs real combinations of things were done in drums to make those perfect big sounding tracks, you know? And so, you know, I, I have a relationship with, with the the guy who's a producer and a fabulous bass player who might've even played on some of those, played bass on some of those harem uh, tracks. Maybe he played on that record. I'm not sure. But a guy named Steve Webster, who's also a super talented Canadian played bass with Billy Idol on the Rebel Yell tour back there with uh, Steve Stevens and Tommy Price and that, you know, that sort of original Billy Idol world. Anyway, super talented guy. He programmed a lot of the drums on that stuff. And, you know, I've had lots of chats with him over the years about that because I'm playing that stuff live. And and he also played with Atlanta Miles, which I, I also played with Atlanta for a while. And right. like, so we have all these, mm-hmm. these sort of like cross paths. So I sort of have his, his take on like putting that stuff together I have the whole thing of like the years of Darren doing what Darren did. And, you know, he's, he's a, a powerhouse singer and he played, you know, he played drums on that stuff too. And then we have the thing of like new, new technology, lots at our disposal and we're going to redo it. But I've also played all that material my way, you know, for the the 10 years before we made that record. So to go at it and go, it's gotta be, it's gotta resonate in, in the way that the original did yet we have all these interesting new bits of information to put in there. Plus we're going to play it all. We're going to play it all. Like there isn't going to be any program kick drums or anything like oh, that cool. in there. So, okay. so it's like, you know, obviously things get edited and cut up in, in ways that some drummers don't always love. I'm, I'm a fan of cutting things hard and I'm also a fan of not, not touching stuff. It depends on what you're doing. Mm-hmm. But, um, but in this case, we, you know, we kind of went at it and used the best of all, tools at our disposal and i think we kept i think we kept a lot of the sort of the the good things that had evolved live and i think we stayed true to the recording as much as we could and yeah i I think it turned out great it it was like it was really fun yeah i I mean again that's the first record i was exposed to and you know i kind of keep going back to it but it is interesting to kind of go back to the original 93 recording and and hear the quality of, of of that but also yeah. here in, in some of the similar things. And I hear, because that's always a question that, you know, as drummers, we, we have to ask ourselves, how true do we stay to the recording when we're playing with an artist live? Uh, yeah. You know, what are the important fills that kind of help define this section? Uh, and then where are there areas where we can be a little bit more flexible? And so in using those two recordings as an example, I, I was just curious to know how, close you you wanted to stay with some of the original things i know there were times when it was a a little bit different but uh if you were really conscious of those those choices or if you're like "Eh, 
we'll just just do what we feel. You know, I it, I'm pretty. I, I would say I don't know if the word snobby is right. I'm opinionated about this kind of thing uh-huh. um, because you know I spent a lot of time in my early years learning parts and in the days when you played a song pretty much exactly like it was on the record yeah, live. Yeah. And and I'm sure you've done a ton of it too. Yeah. And and so you cop things and and you know, even in cover bands, just you know, you wanted to do a great job and the education you got, uh, even more so in a cover band as opposed to like a record where it's one drummer, you 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 learn all these interesting style things if you dig deep. And by by staying true to it, you really educate, inform your own playing, and you, you probably you know steal a lot of good things along the way. Uh, th- that part of it, I love. But I also say this: I don't mind if something changes up, as long as the essence resonates in the same way. As long as the essence and the the feeling you get is the same, the intensity stays mm-hmm. where it's supposed to be, and. It's a huge peeve of mine when I hear someone cross say, a, cross the wrong style bridge in a change up. So they've changed something up, but it's like they never paid attention to what the original thing was doing. Hmm. So this this is my thing. I try. I don't know that I'll achieve it for all people listening, but I for for me when I'm if I'm going to change it up, it's usually coming from a place where I go. This either feels better for me to execute because of my own style of playing but it's gonna but it can't be at the expense of what the essence was originally mm-hmm. because then that's that's mm-hmm. either selfish or i'm not paying attention and and it, and i'm wrecking the song if not for me maybe someone who who loves that thing so i'm i i just try to be careful about it and again it's a hard thing that there's no there's no real scale to measure that it's your own taste but no i think you know. that that that's really helpful i mean there's and a lot of people say, well, you're always in a cover band because you're, you know, you're always, unless it's your band and you've been on the record. And then, yeah. I mean, you're always covering someone, you're, you're oftentimes covering someone else's part if you're doing, but, but I think that, I think it's a really good point because I think I, I like, I guess maybe some, some past experiences that I've had with people that want it just like the record, whether it was a certain artist or somebody being very obsessive compulsive Yep. It kind of started to get into my head that, okay, this is the starting point. I need to learn this drum part, and I chart it out, and sometimes I have, I have details that go w- above and beyond. Uh, yeah. And uh, as I've gotten older, I realize, you know what? People don't care. I mean, there's the, – the, the, <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean, oftentimes sure. they don't know uh, – the, the, the members of the band, oftentimes they don't know exactly – that I'm playing the same drum fill or a different drum fill. But what is important in what you're saying is that if it takes, if it detracts from the feeling that that original part gave to the song, then you've got a problem. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the thing. I mean, you know, it, it, drummers, drummers can get away with murder in say in, in a pop Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. pop rock country thing, because there, you know, there are certain things that are going to work. You're playing a straight eights groove, you're doing a certain thing. You'd have to be, you'd have to do something really wrong or inappropriate to, you know, raise, raise eyebrows. Um, but you know, it's, it can still be done. <laughs> People have still achieved that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I find like, you know, 
on a, on, a, on just on a musical level, you can hear it like in a guitar part, for instance, like someone's got a guitar line and it might be like a straighter, more orchestrated line. And then they put a little blue note noodle at the end of it or something. And you're like, yeah, man, you just, you just blew it. Like you just, that line doesn't do that. It doesn't go there. It doesn't, it doesn't pull that style into it. It's, mm-hmm. it soars there and it's almost like a string part. And then you went, Hey, I'm a guitar player in a blues band. And it was like, oops. And that's, that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about. You can, you can do it on the drums too. You can, you can, you can helicopter the hi-hats in the wrong place or something, you know, whatever. But it it's that kind of thing that like, I just, I don't want to be that guy. Yeah. So I, tr- yeah. I, I think one of the artists I work with, I can't remember who it was, but it, it might've been, there's a guy named Kim Mitchell up here. Who's an amazing, For sure. amazing guitar, guitar player. Yeah. <laughs> Probably like I don't know if anyone's got better time than that guy. The, f- the few shows I ever played with him when I was quite a young person, I just he was amazing. But I think he said something about like, well, you know, like for this tune, listen to the record, start there. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and he, he said it in a very nice way. But I, I just remember going like, yeah, that's yeah, that's what I'll do. I'll learn it just like the record, and then I'm sure something will evolve from there. My little studio is mostly just me, occasional clients visiting. But so like, you know, I'm, I'm downloading something or I'm just a little frustrated. I go play for 10 minutes, you know, do that in the morning. Go black back and play for another 15 later mm-hmm. in the afternoon. Work on some funny stuff, learn a weird fill, you know, whatever. I, do, I, I have a sort of a very unstructured drumming is in my life, like like taking a run around the block or going for a walk. Mm-hmm. And and I, and I I realize I need that or I would lose touch completely when I do have a specific gig or session coming up I might shed a little bit more focus you know with a little gotcha. more of a focus gotcha. and at that point you know like if I know over Harem's records coming up yeah like I'll probably I'll go I should probably play an hour a day for the couple of weeks leading up yeah. you know <laughs> just because you you don't want to be battling with things that should be second nature. Yeah, yeah, and if and if and if you're not doing it all the time, like you know, you're like, wow, my 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 physicality on my kick drum is an issue. All of a sudden, it's like that. That's something I would never have thought of when I was 18 and right. playing a gig gig every night. And you know, it, it was just it was just there. So you don't want to be in a place where you're like struggling with your physicality because then then that's the instrument. You know, you're not just playing the instrument anymore. You're 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 fighting. I remember reading an article, Stuart Copeland talked about, you know, uh, you know, we're getting ready for this tour, and so uh, I'll spend a couple weeks uh, touching my drums for the first time in like a year or more. And you're just like, what? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I can't get enough of it. I, I'm playing every day, and, you know, uh, that just blew my mind. Well, everyone, everyone's a different, you know, everyone's got a different thing. And mm-hmm. I, don't know, I don't know if you feel this way. Like, I don't, I, I wouldn't say like, if I don't practice, like, for instance, like when I did jingle stuff, I didn't do a lot of it, but I can remember like getting a call because I had a, one of my good buddies at the time and uh, was a, a later as a business partner. He was a jingle writer. He was working. He was a young guy working with all the greats of the time. And he was getting me in on stuff that he was writing. So I was occasionally going into a session that I kind of had no business going into, but with a little bit of a little bit of uh, information ahead of time, thank God. And like, you know, going in and like stirring it up on the brushes with like great jazz players. And like, yeah, I can kind of do that in like a loungy, brunchy kind of way. But like, am I a jazz drummer? No Mm -hmm. one's hiring me for that. Mm -hmm. But I love it. 
And with a little, with a little bit of warning and a little bit of shedding, I went in there and didn't, you know, didn't blow it. But that's the kind of thing, like if, if someone wants me to do something out of the ordinary, they either have to be patient with a lot of punches or, or I better, you know, I better get a little bit of uh, practice time in, or it's going to be, it's going to be a bit awkward. Yeah, pull from that time when when we were all kind of learning all these different styles and figuring out who we were, you know, I did kind yeah. of tapping into that identity. Uh, have there been bands that you've recorded at your place? I, you know, I'm not, my place is, I'm sort of the anti-band guy. Um, <laughs> you don't like bands? <laughs> yeah, I kind of don't like bands. I mean, it, I, I shouldn't say I love bands, but I, I like, if I'm if I was recording a band, I would probably, you know, I'd probably do it somewhere else. And, and do some overdubs here. My place is a great size for like, if I'm working with an artist, if I'm putting tracks together and bringing in some other musicians kind of one at a time and uh, working in that kind of a more intimate project sort of situation. Um, yeah. I've shied away from bands in general, just because it, this is, it's, it's trickier. Mm-hmm. Band, bands are, bands are trickier on all, all fronts. Uh, I, I don't probably need to tell you that. Um, you, you you know exactly what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah, so, yeah. Um, you know, the, the, there's there's a million ways to analyze uh, the problems with bands. But a great band is a beautiful thing. And, uh, you know, obviously I love playing in musical bands, not actual, like, band members' bands. <laughs> Does that make sense? Sure. I, love, I love being... I love being a band member on the bandstand and not anywhere else. Does that? Uh, that yeah, I get it. I that, get it. That's yeah. that's the thing. So yeah. I love the idea of a band, but the actual politics of a band and working with a band is trickier. Right, right. Well, uh, just to your experience with recording drums for for a lot of our listeners that are getting into recording more at home and yeah. the technology allowing that to happen. Yeah, where, right. where where have you seen the technology come from, uh, and where do you see it going? Well, I mean, just the whole the evolution of like just you know preamps that are like affordable, and you can buy a rack of eight preamps in a little you know a little one half rack unit that's you know a thousand bucks, and you can track most of your kit that way with some pretty average mics and it sounds pretty good yeah. and the, the software applications post recording can get you to amazing room simulations and expensive outboard gear simulations you know and then you can drop in world-class samples recorded in beautiful studios that augment where you're where you're a little shy that way there's not much you can't do and everyone's doing it right like yeah and yeah. and the same technology that you're hearing on a record that had all the best people in the world working on it is available to you. So that part of it's kind of cool. Is it? I mean, it is cool, but it also, I'm sure it's, it's frustrating at times for those that know the gear inside and out, maybe have a history with all that analog gear and knew how to make it work and built their rooms and did all these things. And now, Somebody in their garage can do the same, but still it not be the same. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I don't think you can ever replace that. And I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, I'll say this. I have drums set up. I can record drums. I don't do it that often. Like when I'm, when I'm looking at a a project or or something I'm, I'm putting together, it's a, it's like a 50, 50, whether I should just program some drums or, or set up the mics and try to record. 
you know, from a time standpoint and a, and a money budget, uh, it, it probably doesn't make sense. If I really need great drums, I'm going to Harry's studio where we're recording through an SSL and he's got all the great mics and he's got a great room. And the pro, you know, when a project really needs great drums, I'm going to a great analog gotcha, group. If, gotcha. if there's a budget, I yeah. mean, you know, and it's either a budget or you have the vanity, you know, budget to, to go play and, and have an expensive hobby if that's the, if that's the case. But what I, what I do like is that, you know, on a project where I'm probably mixing some programming with some live drums anyway, in the comfort of my own little place, I can set up some mics. I can do something kind of cool and quirky and I can get some really good sounds fast. And just as being a drummer, that's kind of a freedom drummers haven't had before. Um, you know, even, you know, guitar players have been sitting down at the earliest digital rigs and eight tracks and four track little recorders at home, plugging in one line direct and bass players and keyboard players and like, yep. you know, doing it. Yep. And drummers, you know, in my early studio, I had like some crappy PZM mics and some horrible and I'd set up some stuff and I'd try to get a sound. It was like, you know, it was a nightmare. It sounded terrible. And comparatively, other people could kind of almost get something as good as what they were doing elsewhere directly. So I, I'm curious if you could speak to this that I, I feel like there were times when I was starting to learn to record more at home. And this has been a this has been a process over the last four or five years. And I was trying to get my gear together, but I didn't quite know all that I was doing and I was I was trying to set my drums up in a, in in the different rooms of my house you know it much to my family's frustration yeah. you know they got to lower that symbol to watch TV you know because uh, this is the best room to record it in um, Hilarious. but what I found was uh sometimes uh somebody would call and say hey I, I I'm looking to get some drums on this track when can you do it and I'm thinking okay I need to set these mics up I need to do this so I'm thinking, uh, maybe about a week, a week or two. They're like, "Oh no, I need it tomorrow." Uh, so yeah. um, uh, I, I'm going to try somebody else, but I'll keep you in mind. Of course, that means that they'll never call you again because they'll establish that relationship with another drummer. And I've come to realize, and I'd like to, yeah, I'd like you to speak to this: is that I have a, a, a small soundproof room that I I built to to have a practice space, but not as necessarily a quote unquote recording space when we moved into this house 10 years ago and I'm realizing, man, if I would have thought ahead, I would have built this a little bit bigger, given myself a little bit more room for room sounds. But I'm thinking, you know what? If somebody's calling me and they're on a budget and they need something right away the next day, then maybe it's not the big room sound they need. Maybe it's not these things that can't be fixed in post or whatever. They need a drummer to play a part on their song and it needs to be right away. We're not cutting a record here. They need drums on this. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, it's what you described. I I go through this on a regular basis because I love to play and I'll, you know, I'll be talking to somebody who's working on a project that I, I want to, play on you know and i'll say oh that 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 song there would be awesome with a live track and you want to do it i'm like yeah i want to do it but i'm like but you know like you said i kind of gotta stop what i'm doing (laughs) i've Mm got to gotta set up mics i've got to get sounds you're engineering yourself i'm fussy as a musician anyway and i'm gonna now send a track off to someone so i'm gonna be 
that much more weird about it. Maybe, maybe even neurotic, let's just say it. And, <laughs> and then I'm going to want to edit it at least to, you know, not ship anything that isn't, you know, feeling usable immediately. Yeah. And I might even drop in samples or whatever, depending on what their needs are. But it's a lot of time for something you can't charge too much for. And, and if you have other things going on that, you know, that are, that are work related, or in my case, I'm using this space for voiceover or other different mm-hmm, things like that. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, it, it, it's amazing how, like how infrequently it's convenient to do it, even though, you know, I, I would love to do it. And at the same time, and, and, and you can, you can speak to this. I go online, I see how many great drummers mm. you seem you can, you can hire at various resources and get a track for like a hundred bucks. Yeah. Like, yeah. and, and I just go, okay, maybe that's, maybe that's not for me then. I don't know. It, w- it would sure would be fun, but it doesn't seem like I can, I'm going to be able to compete based on the way I'm, you know, wor- working in the way I think. Mm-hmm. Could, could you speak a little bit to samples as, as that's starting to, the technology is getting so nuts that, yeah. uh, I, I, it's, I'm just starting to learn about it. I, I'm just kind of wondering if some of my listeners are probably like, dude, come on, get with it. Uh, <laughs> they probably know all about it, but maybe for those of us like me that are just starting to learn more about samples, I, I, I did a track for a guy a couple weeks ago and, um, there was something funky about my inside kick mic and right. in the take, I liked the take and he liked the take as well, which is good. Um, but so that's the one we used. I found I needed to replace that kick drum with a sample and I wasn't happy about it, but it sounded great. It cleaned up the whole track. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that that's, that's all I'm going to say is like, it's great. It's it's like it's like anything like like it's like auto tune. Boy, that's annoying, isn't it? Except for when it takes when you just use it in a way that takes something that was like almost perfect and you you make it perfect in all the right ways without ruining it. Then mm-hmm. it's like the best technology. Mm-hmm. And and that's that's the thing I love about I love samples. Uh, you know, I think everything that I played on in the last 20 25 years has probably had a sample reinforcement on it if it you know maybe not a jingle thing or you know but pretty much it's been pr- pretty much everything and when i'm working on stuff like i'm use i'm always using because i program drums too I'm, I'm always i think of it almost like the same thing i want layers of things i want i want to be able to mix and max match the, the textures and the sonics and you know have you just it's it, you just couldn't do it with a normal kit um and not to mention like you your problem something goes wrong with with something or it's you know something's crapping out and you can't mm-hmm. really use it suddenly you can put something beautiful in there and yeah, yeah. and it's nice and isolated and you know you can you're not losing it <laughs> in the mm-hmm. in in the in the kit anymore it's like wow that's it's i don't know um it's kind of like it's um it's one of those things that's like it it spells the beginning of the end or it's the end of a certain way of doing things which I also love, I grew up making records on tape and, you know, I'll be kind of honest. The first time I went into a session and it was like, oh yeah, we can just punch in on drums. I almost cried. I, I know. Like, yeah. I mean, right. I mean, how many, how many times were my, what I thought was my best take got erased because someone was focusing on like a bad rhythm guitar track that was going down at the mm-hmm. same time or something, mm-hmm. or, or you just were like, you know, no one was really paying attention the first couple of takes and now I hate the song. 
and it's like take 12 or whatever and it's like we're done you it's and you're and you're recording overtake like pro tools has been amazing for that i i love the, i love that whole digital domain because mm-hmm. of that the ability not to lose things not to burn yourself out just trying to get you know that performance although there's a beautiful thing about beating the crap out of yourself to get a perfect drum track right, right. <laughs> or, or a mostly perfect drum track and there, there's something the discipline of that was amazing because as we all know and you know nashville being like the place the epicenter uh in the of, the, of, of that kind of you know record making the guys that could just go in there and do it you know they were special and there, there were there was handfuls of guys that could do it and there were not a lot of other people could well, time is money, and if you can go lay it down in, in one take uh, and and leave room yeah. for the guitar player to do his second guitar part and his third guitar yep. part, yep. and, uh, you know, people could get the uh, the four songs in the two-hour block, then, then they're ready to go. It's brilliant. This episode is brought to you by DrumSellers.com, the niche marketplace where drummers, drum retailers, and drum manufacturers buy and sell their gear. List your drums for sale for free, and the only fee is 4% if it sells. Simple. Check out all the new used vintage and custom drum eye candy at drumsellers.com. Getting into your songwriting and producing, uh, were people aware that you did this, uh, or was it more... Did people become more aware? Uh, You put out a couple solo records, one back in 1998, one back in 2005. Do, do Do you feel like that... In that allowed people to hear what you were capable of? Uh, you know, I, I don't really know. I, I, I always find this, and because, because you know, I, 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 some people know me as a drummer. Uh-huh. Some people know me as someone who's dabbled around in some songwriting. Some people think, think I'm a theater guy. And uh, some people only know me as an advertising guy. And what, what I find is like, in my early years, I used to, you know, I, I used to get frustrated that, you don't understand my whole, my, the whole complex me, you know? And, and now what I realize, like, man, I'm just lucky that somebody calls me for something. <laughs> and, and if someone thinks of, thinks I'm the theater guy, awesome. I, I, thanks for calling. Mm-hmm. Thanks for thinking of me as something. And those who, you know, the, the thing that warms my heart the most is when someone goes, man, I'd love you to come play drums on this. Like that, that to me, cause I think at, at the core of it all, drumming is the thing I love the most. It really is it's the most natural living, breathing thing for me to do musically. I love yeah. it, but I also might not, have, you know, at that, for whatever I was doing, I, I was interested in too many other things to just keep doing that solely. And I was very, very lucky to get a chance to do some of these other things. So, you know, the fact that anyone thinks of me in any form as someone that could get the job done, um, I'm kind of just grateful uh, and I'm, and I'm lucky to be doing whatever I'm doing. It is interesting that even if you're not playing drums, but you're in a creative element or you're surrounded by people that have that same kind of, uh, I, I don't know, I, I've experienced this with the podcast and I've experienced this in other areas of music business that they're kind of your people. Um, yeah. they, there's, a, there's a similar language, there's a similar attitude, um, or a little bit rough around the edges, a little bit more relaxed kind of personality. Uh, that uh, I realize, man, if I'm if I don't if I'm not out gigging a- as a way of making a living, I know I've got to be somewhere in the music business <laughs> because yeah. I don't think I could survive 
in a, a, a like a corporate environment or another environment. I don't think I would fit very well. well. I, and I feel I feel the same way. And you know, I the, the interesting thing, uh, you know, when I when I was introduced to sort of the advertising side of things, mm-hmm. it was first as a musician, and at at that stage of the game you're kind of like you're coming in you're kind of laughing at the suits you know behind their back yeah, you're like yeah. oh, these fucking jokers what you know what are they what do they know about anything they don't know music this is stupid i'll play on this cheerio spot and blah 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 but then then i got into the the writing production dealing with client side of things and there are definitely some you know impasses as far as dealing with a different type of human Mm-hmm. probably probably mm-hmm. similar to like in the when you're in a, in music like to you know there's the record company and there was the band there was the us and them back in the day um it, you're just dealing with a different breed like your banker or something and but all i will say is that it it's when it was good for me because i think i was a cocky little know-it-all in my younger years it was good for me to have these other experiences because I didn't know everything and I was, you know, skating on thin ice sometimes not maybe being, not being as experienced as I should be, but I had to learn the language and I had to make it work and I had to get along with different people and creatively I've had to learn how to decipher the different languages to give the client what they want and hopefully give them something that I think is good too, which is the, which is the real cherry on top if you can do it. Yeah, yeah, but but th- but that thing of like being thrown into another environment, I I wouldn't want to live there. I wouldn't want to go work somewhere where you know my my Google Calendar fills up with meetings all day, and and you know I'm I'm wearing a tie and showing up at eight. But I, I like these little visitations to the theater world, to the corporate world, mm-hmm. and the various other places that I I get to dabble in because it, it's taught me you know to communicate better and to be clearer and to, you know, to go, well, there's a lot of different ways to do this. It's not just my way or there, you know, I can, I have to see everyone else's side, even if it's, even if it seems crazy. <laughs> and, and even if my 20 year old self would just laugh at them. No, I think these are, that's, that's really, I'm so glad you say this because I, I think it's really important to not disregard these skills, these important skills in communicating with people that necessarily don't think the way you do, because what it does is you still bring to the table the creative element that they so desperately need for their, to, to, to achieve their agenda. Uh, and, and so that opens the door for you to do the work that we all want to do. You know, well, it's the same job you're doing. Look, you, you've been on the floor and somebody wants something from you that for whatever reason doesn't feel exactly right might not even be that musically good, might not even be the best situation, but they want something from you, mm-hmm. whether, whatever it is. And you find a way to, to be the good guy, the good musician, and deliver something that makes them happy, mm-hmm. even if it's either awkward for you or against your best judgment, to the point where it's still good, it's still usable. And that that happens, you know, that I, I found that all the time as a drummer, and, and it made me most crazy in advertising <laughs> because someone would start directing musicians who had no business directing musicians and that was really that could be really weird Uh, but at the end of the day you know you don't want to be the guy sitting there going like no you can't do it you have to be the guy who says okay there's a way to do this and there's a way to there's a there's this is this is my thing that i've been saying lately there's a hundred ways to do it that'll work there's 10 ways to do it for sure that'd be really good 
Mm. My favorites are like this, but you know, I, I have to, you have to be the guy who goes, there's, there's 90 other ways that aren't going to be maybe the best that could still work and be fine. And if someone wants one of those, then you've got to like, you got to be able to serve it up and make it work or, or you're the, you're the problem in the room. And, you know, as a musician, you don't want to be the guy who's difficult. And as a, when when you're, you have clients that need things, you kind of have to be the creative problem solver. Right. So, so, so look, I look at it now, even as a drummer now, I I used to be like, that's stupid. Drummers wouldn't do that. Like I wouldn't necessarily verbalize that, but that's what I'd be thinking. I'd be like that. That's not, that doesn't even make sense. I, I, that would be my first thing going on in my head. But now I go, well, this person's going to ask me to do something go to my comfort zone. They're going to love that. I'm like, Hey, that's kind of cool. Let's try that. They're going to relax when I welcome it. And then, you know what? Half the time I always find like, wow, I never would have done that. And it's kind of cool. There, there's, there's so much we talk about in, and in, in, with the podcast and, and it's that feeling that you leave behind with the the client, the songwriter, whoever it is that you're working with, the band member, the engineer, that kind of resonates with that person. Not ne- not not that drum fill that you play, not this or that. It's just it's like, man, this person. I don't know what it is about them, but I, I just they're on my radar, and I, I want to work with this person again. Yeah, yeah. It's keeping. I mean, you know, when again, you're young. If you're young, you're not, you and I are probably around the same age. You mm-hmm. certainly are a very experienced guy, and you've done lots of stuff. I, I didn't learn this as a musician. When I, like I say, as a, when as a working musician, I think I was a little more cocky and like, hey man, I do it like this. But as I did these other jobs and I learned to deal with clients, I realized when people are leaving at the end of the day, you want them to be feeling like they had a good time they were well taken care of and they're they you know they they'd like to come back you don't want them to be thinking like wow someone was saying no all the time and and making them feel bad about their work like once you've decided you're going to do something whether it's showing up on a date or deciding to take you know take on a, a, a an audio gig or whatever it's your job to make it you know make it a party you're the host <laughs> make it good Right. It's, it's, and, and a lot of these people that probably come to you, they're like, Hey, this will be fun. Let's have fun. Let's, let's do something and kind of leave them with that feeling. Well, that, that should be the idea. Even, even if it's work for you, that is kind of, you know, I don't, I'm not saying it, it, it's contagious. You know, you, you make it fun. It will be fun for everyone. For drummers that are looking to expand their workload into other areas like production and and maybe do more recording or get into some more songwriting just do things outside of touring and and playing out live for maybe some of the same reasons that that you've uh i mean there's there's a variety of reasons why we kind of have to adjust our workload but for 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 those that have are looking to do more and expand their their workload what advice might you have for them i i don't i wouldn't say i ever had a, a really great plan but <laughs> i would say the the best advice i was ever given by one of my drum mentors who's a, a, a canadian drummer named david james who's an educator in toronto still playing living in halifax now great drummer but you know he he said to me when i was quite young and looking for professional words of wisdom he just said hey you know you got to do what you like just basically find a way to do some of the stuff you like so that's the first thing 
you got to do stuff you like on a mm-hmm. regular basis, preferably every day. And my dad would say, have some fun every day, whether that's playing tennis or golfing or jogging or walking the dog or playing your drums, whatever. Um, the other thing um, is that you just got to start doing it. And, and, and another musician friend of mine who was a great guitar player, when I was learning to play guitar, I was like, you know, what should, what should I be doing? What should I be? And he said, you should just get the thing in your hand and play it all the time. And yeah, I was like, okay. Yeah. And, and that's the thing about when I decided, I came off the road when I was around 30 and I was having a really good run. I was, you know, when I wasn't on the road, I was making records and getting to play on sessions and I was having a pretty good run as a drummer and things were falling in my lap in lots of ways, but I wasn't as satisfied anymore and I needed to change it up and the digital age was coming. I was already dabbling with a home studio and I decided I was going to make a go of, you know, setting up a little studio at home and just whatever, whatever it was going to be writing, writing songs, demoing, developing artists, anything that, anything that came anywhere near me that was work. I, I volunteered to do it regardless of the budget to get the experience to mm-hmm. do the thing. And most, of, I would say that, that led to all the work that I have now, like all the vanity projects that I started with other guys I, that I like turned into businesses, turned into projects. Uh, the, the the friend that was directing his first theater show and as a guy ended up doing 20 shows with professionally over time and led to all my other contacts in theater. And, you know, I just, I think it's really about if you have other things you want to do, start doing them. You got to find a way, you know, you got to, regardless of money and time, you got to find a way to start doing it. And, and, you know, if you get a chance to do something, even if it's not going to be the same pay you would have liked to have, you know, for your, your a drum gig, take it and do it and do a great job. And, you know, that, that's the only model I know. I'm not even saying that it's, it's smart, but that's kind of how I've always worked. If I've never been good at marketing, I've never understood that. I always say that my marketing plan is the same as Tom Hanks and Castaway, whatever washes up on the shore. That I try, <laughs> I try to keep it. Yeah. You know, that's, that's pretty much it. If I get in the same room with someone, I want to, I want to at least leave the, if when they leave the room, I want them to think they would like to come back again. And that's, that's pretty much my only marketing plan. So, you know, if, if there's something I'm interested in doing, if it's writing piano music for a puppet show and someone says, I got a puppet show I'm doing, I'm saying I will volunteer to do the piano score. Uh, that, that I would say that's, that's the way to go. Just do it. Find a way to get mm-hmm. going. Yeah. Monet, monetizing music is hard in this day and age. And I, I am as confused as anyone else about how that works, but uh, there's still lots of people doing stuff. And uh, if you're reliable and you deliver and you're good and you're, you know, easy to get along with, there's a good chance you'll be able to expand your, your client base. Right. And, and, and there's always that middle ground where you, you're putting yourself out there, you're, you're volunteering your time and your energy to this work. And, and then people are saying, but we don't want you to do to devalue this creative process that we're all involved in. Uh, yep. so, you know, so, so, you know, that at some point you have to say, okay, listen, uh, you know, I've been working with you for, you know, the last year or so. And, uh, but you know, yeah. here's, here's my rate now. I mean, have you had a, a, a time that that's happened? You've got to, I think you've got to keep it professional with people. So you've got to set up, you've got to set up professional boundaries for what, okay. you're, what mm-hmm. you're doing, yeah. but you've also, you've also got to be realistic about what you're offering. And, you know, I, I, I would say that I have been paid way more 
than I should have been for some work. And I have been paid way less than I should have been for a lot of other work, mm-hmm. you know, just based on like whatever the going rate is or the scale of, you know, this, the year we're in, um, you, you've got to, you got to be able to set up some boundaries. You, obviously you can't be like, I'm going to work for free and that's going to be great for paying my mortgage. That's not going to work for too long, but you, you can decide, you know, for this particular thing to get the experience, I would do something for free or I would do something for barter or I would make, you know, make some sort of arrangement that's got its limitations so that it's does it's not the ongoing arrangement for, you know, everything that, that comes from that particular person or everything going forward. You've got to get some experience though. Right. And yeah, I was a musician who lived at home until I was 17 and I had free music lessons provided mostly by the government and my parents and, you know, some teachers. I, 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 and I did, I played all the time for no money and I, I learned a lot of stuff by just doing it. And you can't just suddenly go, well, I got I got my MacBook and some mics and some software, and I'm pretty good with this stuff. And, you know, compared to someone like, you know, you talk about who's been working with the gear for 30 years. Yeah. And yeah, no, yeah. No, knows it inside out. Like when I, mo- when I moved into production, I was, I was over my head when I was saying yes to stuff, but I was over my head sometimes. And, you know, <laughs> and, and sometimes I was over my head and, but I was charging accordingly too. Yeah, so, yeah. and, and the only way I got the experience to be more confident and to, to kind of get to a place where the, I could charge more for competent work was to do it and to do it a little cheaper and, uh, you know, have the experience because if it's only about, well, I got to move laterally or at least, or up and have a career change, you know, my, my first few years going from being a drummer, you know, I, I think, you know, if I remember even just to use real numbers, I think I was, I was making really good, steady money as a drummer. And I, and I was like suddenly in my house doing tracks for like $200 a track and maybe only doing two or three a month <laughs> while I monkeyed around with a bunch of other things for free. Mm-hmm. It, like I took a hit to trans for the transition and I had no kids and I had no mortgage and my overhead was very low and it was a different time. You know, all those things, all these things need to be taken into consideration. Everyone's life is different, but I, th- I think it's really important w- what you're saying about like all the time we spend learning our instrument, learning our craft, that the, just the energy that we put into just picking up the sticks every day when we were younger and all the hours we put into playing without it. Because it's what we loved. It's what we it's what we did, and we weren't yeah. thinking about okay, somebody should be paying me to do this. You know, you, you weren't thinking that when you were sixteen years old, yeah. and and but I, I think that if it's now you're moving into a new field, a new area, you still have to give yourself some grace for that that grace period of time that is going to be a, uh, a, a, a you're not going to get paid. To... It might not. <laughs> yeah, for a lot of the. Work. I mean, it's it. There's just transferable. There's transferable experiences, right? And and right. being self-employed, being a musician, I I think we're a resilient, crazily resilient bunch. <laughs> yeah, and we reinvent constantly. We don't even know when we're reinventing because we're just so good at it. And that's something I think all self-employed working musicians or self-employed people in general, they they you need that pat on the back sometimes because you're so busy surviving. You have you don't get a chance to step back and have that perspective. Mm-hmm. But you, if you've been around for more than a couple of years doing it, and if you've been around for decades like we have, 
you know you're doing something right. You know you are some sort of slithery chameleon that can keep morphing and changing yeah, and doing yeah. what needs to be done to be working. That's that's just a reality. So, you know, if you're doing it anyway, you're probably well suited to make a change. If you're not happy or you need to make a change because it, you, you just need to, then you, know, you have to find a way to do it. There are, there's never going to be a guarantee that it's going to be you know, a, a more lucrative or successful move to, to do something else. But the other, the other thing that I always liked, and there was the reason I still play my drums, uh, even though I wouldn't say I've been making my living on drums alone for a number of years, you know, I never give up the job you have while you're getting the new job going. Right. Uh, right. That, that you've got to straddle from where you're, where things are working to where you want things to be constantly. That is, that is sort of what you're doing anyway within your, you know, within your vocation, when you decide to add another thing to it, you, you got to keep all those balls going and, and it's not easy, but that I think is really, that's the, the, the key and that's the trick. You don't, you don't burn a bridge, you know, just, just cause you'd like to maybe like check something out that you've never checked out before. It might not mm -hmm. work out, mm -hmm. you know, so I think being able to just really put yourself out there and it makes you more of a, like you say, a chameleon. And it's, it's so interesting because we here in the States, you know, we talk about, and I imagine it's, it might be similar in Canada where it's, there's, we live in a gig economy and, and yeah. I, yeah. I, I hear, you know, pundits talking about like, what does that mean? And what does that mean? for? <laughs> and of course I'm going, Oh, give me a break. Like, let I've me been, tell you, I've been doing this for the last 20 years. You know, where do I start? Uh, and it, it doesn't scare me. And I have friends that, that do music part-time, but have their day jobs. And they say, you know, like I couldn't like, what, what are you doing in three months? And I'm like, you know what? I don't know what I'm doing in yeah. three months, but I've been doing, I've been living that way pretty much for the last 20 years that I know that next month's going to get filled and the next month's going to get filled because, yeah. uh, you know, it's not everybody in my client list is going to disappear. But yeah, it's a different kind of thing, for sure. A musician arranger up here uh, named Kevin Fox, who's also from Halifax, cellist. He's kind of a rock and roll cellist. Plays with a lot of artists. He can he can arrange, you know, symphony orchestra. He can he can do anything. He's a, he's a guitar player, songwriter, singer. He's working all the time, and you know, he said something. He said he goes, "Part of my business plan is faith," <laughs> you know. And I thought, yeah, that's right. Part of yeah. your business plan is just having faith, and, <laughs> and that is crazy. But you know that that has to be part of it, or, or you go crazy. You have to kind of believe it's going to work out. Yeah, yeah. Well, that uh, you know, we could have saved so much time, Creighton, just saying that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good. Way, it's a good. It's a good way to end. It's a good way to end. Yes, I, I think so. Like, uh, hey, hey, it's nice to meet you. So, uh, what's the key? <laughs> faith thank you have a great day get back to work yeah get back to work well i yeah. i i i was right when i i was thinking this will be good for me this will this will kind of get my brain away from how i'm processing the whole flu virus right now and oh. I, I i feel good man i've really enjoyed this conversation and um my energy is up and i just i really appreciate the time that you've given given me and oh. given us I've enjoyed you, and and I'll say this: I've been doing all the talking. You're a very clever uh, interviewer, <laughs> and uh, you you haven't. I, there's there's much I need to find out about you. I hope we will stay in touch. I yeah. will follow you more closely online, 
And I am grateful uh, for the intro from Pete. And uh, thank you for your interest in the harem record and all other things that we talked about. Super fun. Yeah. Awesome, Creighton. Well, I, again, thank you so much. This is uh, lots of u- very unique information about the work that you do. And uh, I th- I th- I'm just excited for people to hear hear this. So, well, But thank you, man, so much. You're too kind. Thank you. I hope you feel better soon. And I'm sorry you have to edit this. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Creighton. Well, I'll be in touch. All right. Great. All right. Thank Thanks. you, Matt. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. So there's my conversation with Creighton Doan. I wanted to offer a different perspective. We like to do this from time to time with different instrumentalists. Um, but being that Creighton is a drummer, but also does many different things and has made a living in the last few decades as uh, as a producer and a creator and a writer, uh, without any fear of uh, you know, well, I'm I'm not this kind of uh, I'm not a piano player. I'm I'm not a guitar player, but I do these things, and my experience in drumming informs me in how to accomplish these things and be creative and continue to work in this wonderful business. And I appreciate uh, Creighton so much for doing that. As I mentioned, probably in the episode, I was dealing with about 101 temperature, but I have to tell you, that conversation, just as a distraction, just really made me feel good. And uh, it might have been during that time that my temperature went down. And um, of course, I wanted to call and get all my gigs back that I had canceled, but uh, I felt better after that episode, and I was uh, back 100% within about a day. So um, that was great. That was my that was my medicine. Uh, also in this episode, I mentioned talking about the band Harem Scarum. So since it's um, you know it's my podcast, I get to decide who the guests are. I had to find out who played drums on these Harem Scarum records, and I reached out to my friend Pete Lesperance who connected me with Creighton, and it just turned into a conversation I couldn't have expected. And I, I appreciate that so much, Pete, for connecting me with Creighton. And uh, what a fun conversation. I hope to keep in touch with him over time. Stay tuned next week for Zach Albetta's interview. We appreciate you all so much for participating in this week's Aquarian giveaway contest. And I appreciate you all listening and keep in touch. Hope to see you around. Bye-bye.